Okay, all right, and welcome, welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. We are back. It's another week. I have another fantabulous guest doing fantabulous things who I don't even know this person. Big surprise that I got to meet somebody virtually through one of our other podcast guests, Dr. Anel Prim. So I am going to ask Damon Watson to introduce himself. Damon. Who are you? <laughs> Thank you for that, Karis. Um, my name is Damon Watson. Um, pronouns he, him is. I am a son, a brother, a cousin. Um, I was a grandson, um, and I will forever be a grandma's boy. I have to honor my grandmother's transition back in November. Her light and her soul continues to live through me. I am a first-generation college graduate. I am a country boy that grew up on a farm in central Virginia where we raised our food, pigs and cows. We had a smokehouse in the back. My first job was on the tobacco field, maintaining and eventually picking and hanging tobacco to be sold. Um, It was the first job I had and the first job I've ever been fired from. Um, I really just wanted to be in the kitchen with my grandma. I'm a grandma's boy. I'm a healer. I am a leader. And I am a young Black boy that's passionate about Um, making sure that we amplify mental health in the Black and Brown community. Amazing. Amazing. I love that introduction. You placed yourself in so many different um, realms, especially those related to family and the importance of, you know, what we talk about on this podcast relative to Black mental health. And particularly because we know the statistics, and maybe you'll tell us a little bit about some of them around um, young Black boys and um, brown boys in, in mental health. So you do work in this area too. So let's talk a little bit about what are what are some of the things that are kind of cropping up for our young our young Black and brown boys? You know, I think when we think about young Black and brown boys, we have to think about, um, one, seeing them for who they are and the brilliance and the beauty and the innocence that they bring and that they are that who that they are right um oftentimes unfortunately we live in a society that doesn't see black brown bodies as such so my mind goes you know and I'll definitely talk about some statistics the idea of what if we lived in a world where we created spaces for black and brown boys to just exist right without any notions on them but to just exist what would the world look like then, right? Um, we know in this the last few years, we've seen a plight in mental health issues around Black and brown bodies. Um, we know Black youth under the age of 13 are twice as more likely to die by suicide compared to their white counterparts. We know that self-reported suicide attempts increased for Black males by 73% into 2019. We know that Black adolescents are most are significantly less likely to receive care for depression or anxiety, which of course is a major risk factor for suicide. We know that social inequality, inequity, social detriments of health, stigma, and mistrust of healthcare providers reinforce this, right? Major depressive episodes have increased from 9% to I think it's like 10.5% for Black Americans between the ages of 12 and 17. The idea of that, right? We know that suicide has increased for that, right? Um, The quickest rise for suicide happened between the ages of 10 to 24, where the rate for Black suicide, Black youth suicide rose by 36% between 2018 and 2021. Mm -hmm. Um, If that doesn't scream, we have to take action, what does? 
Exactly, exactly. Those are a lot of numbers. They came out really fast and furious, but at the end of the day, they're numbers that exactly as you say are telling us we need to be paying attention. And not only do we need to be paying attention, we need to be doing something. And so talk a little bit about what you're doing because it's not sort of, so sometimes it's this idea of thinking about, oh, I have a mental health condition. I need to go see a psychiatrist or psychologist. Isn't the first thing that's going to pop into our minds. And there are many things in which we do in which um, it can impact our emotional well-being. But we always think about the traditional route of, Go, go see that therapist first, which, which is fine. But if that's not what people are doing, there are other things that we also need to think about to um, really support people in their emotional well-being. And some of those things happen to be addressing those social determinants of health. So talk to me a little bit about what you're, the project that you're involved in, the initiative that you're involved in. The fellowship initiative. The fellowship initiative was a program that was created in 2010 by J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, the fellowship initiative, also known as TFI. Um, the goal of that was to provide young men of color between the ages of 14 and 18 with access that they have been historically barred from. College access, tutoring access, access to mentorship, being exposed to just different things, being able to talk about your social and emotional well-being. So the TFI is pretty much a mentorship program run, um, founded by J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, we are now in seven different sites. So we operate in Oakland, Chicago, Dallas, Los Angeles, Houston, New York, and D.C. What we do is we start working with youth between their ninth and 10th grade year. Um, We start working with them, providing them with mentorship and also social emotional learning. And their mentorship is directly from J.P. Morgan Chase. So many of them get mentors that are J.P. Morgan Chase employees. So they get that insight around finances and what that looks like. I wasn't taught that. When I was in school, I had never had a conversation about how to manage my finance and what credit looked like. So they're getting that early um, information about that. I'm a big firm believer that early intervention matters. Um, And then, of course, Vibrant's role, Vibrant's role as the holistic therapeutic provider is really to provide that social emotional support for them. And we do that through case management services, crisis intervention, social emotional wellness workshops. We really want to close that gap for families with unmet needs, right? Many, we, with the TFI, the fellows, they are dedicated to, they're committed to three years with us. So they start working with us between their ninth and 10th grade year, and we work with them all the way up until their first year of college. So they commit three years, three plus years to us. Um, And one thing that's really, really important for us is one to just create spaces for the fellows to show up authentically. And that's where I think is really, really important. Like living in a world where we allow fellows, allow black and brown bodies to show up authentically, then we can form those relationships and provide that support rather than coming in saying, you need this, you need that without seeing the person. So what Vibrant TFI, what we really, really try to enforce is creating brave and affirming spaces for them to just show up. If we can get them to show up authentically, then we can work with them and let them inform us of what supports they need therapeutically, clinically, emotionally, socially, financially, academically. But we can't do that without creating a space for them to show up that motivates them to be vulnerable enough to say, hey, I need this type of help. So Vibrant TFI, really our goal is to create brave and affirming spaces for the fellows to show up. Once they do that, the opportunities to provide support are endless. Wow. Wow. 
how did you even get started in this yourself? I mean, we hear your story as a family person as, you know, uh, being brought up on the farm and all this. And so, but how did, like, how did you even get to the point where you are now? So you're the director of the program now, is that right? I am the director of Vibrant TFI. So pretty much, you know, Vibrant is the therapeutic partner to, to TFI and I'm the director of that program. So I oversee a team of six youth specialists, one in each site that I mentioned earlier, and they're the direct partners with that site in like Oakland or uh, Cali, LA and Houston. They're the direct partners there. Um, so I oversee that team. How did I get here? Um, I've been with Vibrant for five years. Prior to this, I was working in the school system as a behavioral specialist, as a guidance counselor. I've been in mental health all my life. This has been my career. Started out at Morehouse College when I was a student there. I went to school thinking I wanted to do physical therapy, and that quickly shifted for a lot of reasons. Um, but mostly there was an incident that happened at Morehouse College back around, I said, 2002, 2003, where one of our brothers were attacked by another brother. Um, and there were a lot of underlying reasons behind that. But one of the things that really stood out for me was how Black men show up in the world and how our emotions play a role in that. Um, it was it was that moment where I was like, hey, I need to learn a little bit more about that. And that's when I shifted into psychology. I have always been someone that's been in tune with my emotions. Um, my family, I heard for years that I was an emotional person. I heard that all my life. Um, and for me, it was the idea that I believe that our emotions play a role in every move we make. I believe that our emotions play a role in every behavior that we show, every response that we have. I believe that our emotions play a role in that. And I believe our emotions are our superpower. If we can understand, acknowledge, and honor our emotions, that will change the trajectory and everything from that point moving forward. Um, so I'm a big fan in honoring our emotions. Um, how I got here was, you know, simply being passionate about the work that I do around mental health. I started out on the lines at Vibrant, answering calls with from NFL players who needed more support, talking to their families who needed support on how to support their NFL player, our former player, their loved one. That's where I got my start. And then I just moved up from there into supervisor roles, uh, follow-up team, MCT, which is the mobile crisis team, all under the H2H contact center at Vibrant Emotional Health. From there, doing that work for three years, and I shifted over to doing some work with the equity and belonging team, where I was the program manager, really over overseeing the operations aspects of the department. And I knew about TFI for about four years when I got to Vibrant and or once I got to Vibrant and I had applied to other positions with TFI. I wanted to be one of the youth specialists and they're like, yeah, you're overqualified. Um, and I just continued to just keep track of what they were doing to hear about a program that's working directly with black and brown folk, black and brown boys, to be clear. I wanted to be a part of that. One of my challenges here is I've been working in this field for now in almost 15 years, and I do it professionally, but it also creeps up in my personal life, too. So I tell my friends often, I was like, hey, do you want therapy, clinical Damon, or do you want friend Damon? Because they <laughs> will give you two different answers. But I say that to be a Black man doing this work, passionate about mental health, that alone is like a unicorn, uh, <laughs> and your podcast, um, you know, and there aren't a lot of us doing this work. One of my colleagues who was my um, supervisor before I moved into this role, they told me, they said, Damon, sometimes the only thing you have to do is exist. Mm -hmm. Sometimes all those young Black boys need to see is that Black body doing this work, and that will change their perspective on mental health. Um, yeah. That was powerful. 
for me. And it's true. I've walked into spaces in California when I got to meet the fellows there and I could see them be like, hey, what is who is this black man here? Mm-hmm. And I started talking about mental health and I could see some of those walls just come down. So the idea of being a black man doing this work and just existing is powerful in itself, but also making sure that I honor who I am and my identities. So I try to I try to lead with that. I try to make it known that I'm just a black man that wants black folk to be better socially, emotionally, and mentally. Yep. Snaps, claps, thumbs up on all of that. I couldn't agree more. And I was thinking representation matters, representation matters, representation matters. If we don't see ourselves, it's hard to imagine ourselves in that role, in that space, talking about these issues, because it appears to us, they're not ours. Somebody else is like over there, like this isn't our stuff or we can't show up in that way. And I think, you know, the, the things that you're, you know, talking about as far as like, you know, just being present is the start of being enough to get other black and brown boys kind of going, Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like this is how the podcast started. And I've been really, really passionate about ensuring that I'm um, accessing more and more stories, especially of black and brown um, men who are in here doing the work. Yet some of people might not know who y'all are. Thank you for that, Karis, because, you know, that we're out here doing this work. Right. Um, you know, I think oftentimes, though, we don't oftentimes have the privilege to have these type of conversations. So I appreciate and amplify you doing that. We're doing the work. We're in communities. We're meeting with these young black and brown bodies on a regular basis. Right. Um, but society as a whole doesn't see that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think that's a whole other conversation when we start thinking about workers who are out here doing that direct service work and they're not getting the acknowledgement that they deserve because they are the ones out in the community changing lives, exactly. right? But you oftentimes don't hear about that. So I'm honored to be at the table and just be one of many that's doing this work. I am standing on the shoulders of those who were doing this before me and hopefully encouraging a generation of those to do this that's going to do this after me. If we really, really want to affect change, one, we have to realize the power of community and recognize that our voice matters, right? But even then, we have to make sure and we have to knock down those walls that hinder us from being a part of the table. Because mm-hmm. our voice matters and it's important for us to have a say-so if we want to address the community that looks like me. If you're trying to reach a community that looks like me and none of my community is at the table, there is a problem and you're not going to reach us. We're very intentional about the work that we do, even when it comes to planning events, right? We can't plan events for youth if the youth aren't part of it. So one of the things we want to do is center our youth, right? And make sure they're at the table when we're doing this, if we really want to affect that change. I think it's important for, you know, youth, they, their vision, their lens, their experiences, it's powerful in itself. Their stories, their journeys is powerful in itself. But how many times do we actually sit and we're present in that brilliance? We're present in that light. I have learned so much in the work that I do with working with kids and just by sitting down, having a conversation with them that no schooling would have ever taught me. So it's important for us to recognize the idea that lived experience is expertise. And we have to acknowledge and and identify that. And that goes, you know, that's one amplifying peer relationships, but also those who've been through this. How are we honoring their stories and letting that inform us of the work that we need to do? 
as you were talking, I was thinking about all the headlines I see around youth mental health crisis, youth mental health crisis. Then separately, I'll see headlines around increase in suicide rates of young Black boys. I don't see them together, which which they need to be together. Together in, in this way that we need to recognize if there is a youth mental health crisis, that what does that look like for different youth? What does it look like for youth of color? What does it look like for LGBTQ plus youth? What does it look like at the intersections of youth of color who are also LGBTQ that also have other disabilities? I mean, all of these things, it can't be like one brushstroke of there's a youth mental health crisis. We have to be able to think about and bring to the table and have them tell us, right? Because I, I don't know, I'm not I'm not 16 anymore. Um, You know, I didn't have a cell phone when I was 16. I didn't have access to ongoing onslaught of information coming through social media channel. I didn't have that when I was 16. So we have to listen to the voices of our young people to figure out how do we help them navigate a world that's so freaking complex. My goodness, you just said so much. And, you know, I think my mind went to the ideas, even me doing this work, I share with you, I'm a country boy that grew up on a farm. And yes, I've experienced city life and all of that. But how can I dare say that I have all the answers when that's my lens? How can I create a program for those that have lived in inner cities without having them at the table when that has not been my truth? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so it's it's imperative for us to make sure that one, we have to break down this notion that society has created that the black experience is this monolith experience. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. We are these beings that come from different backgrounds, different experiences, different traumas, different hurts and harms, different support systems, different economic classes, different abilities. Like we have to acknowledge that the black experience is not monolith and that we are all these um, amazing beings that has a story and that our story has power. And how are we honoring that story? And I think the best way to honor a story is by listening to the story. But how many times do we create spaces for that to happen. And I think with TFI, the thing that sets us apart, especially, you know, the the holistic program that Vibrant has created is that we want to honor the stories of the people that we serve. So those fellows that come through our door, we want to build that relationship with them. We want them to see that we are a support system. We want them to see that, hey, we're not too different than them. Mm -hmm. We want them to see where those connections come, but also where those differences appear. Um, But to also know that we are trusted and we're here for them. So we want them to just show up and just show up authentically. But that can't happen if we don't just see them for who they are, rather than having this notion on who they may be. I shared earlier that I worked in the school system, right? Part of the reason why I had to get out of the school system is because I was fighting this machine that was hard fighting alone. Um, What I saw working in the school system, especially working from the mental health aspect, was that um, Black and brown boys, Black and brown youth, were being sent to the principal's office for the same infraction that their white counterpart may have made, but the white counterpart got sent to the guidance counselor. Right. Black and brown boys were sent to the principal's office. Their white counterpart was like, hey, what's going on? And excuse me for saying the name Tommy. That's my apologies for that. But they were like, hey, Tommy, what's going on today? Is something happening at home? They were asking these questions to get a feel for what was happening. But our black and brown youth weren't afforded that same opportunity. They were sent to in-school suspension. They were expelled. They were sent to um, timeout 
whatever the case may be, but they were never asked like, hey, what's going on? How are you today? Is something happening at home? And my mind goes to like, what if we as well-meaning adults, I would say, what if we created spaces where we, one, acknowledge the barriers that most Black and Brown youth deal with mm-hmm. and providing them with that same loving and kindness and nurturing that we provided with their to their white counterpart? Mm-hmm. What would the world look like if that started in primary school and continued throughout? The yeah. narrative would shift, the language would shift, the outcome would shift. If we did something as simple as that, unfortunately, there is this yeah, we're continuing to see this uh, pipeline, unfortunately, in the school system that's ignoring the needs of Black and Brown youth. Yeah. I think the pandemic has kind of like amplified it. Um, they've amplified the need for mental health more, um, but we're still missing a part of acknowledging Black and Brown bodies and how they maneuver through the world and acknowledging the barriers and the determinants that may hinder them from getting the supports they need. And also what we're doing to reinforce that. Yeah. And I mean, it really starts with us doing the work on myself. I had to unlearn those things that was taught for years from white supremacy, racism. I had to unlearn those things. Yeah. I have to acknowledge that, Joe, my the only emotion I have isn't anger. I have other emotions than anger. Unfortunately, Black men, we've become so accustomed with that being our primary emotion that we don't know how to feel joy. We don't know how to feel happiness. We're we're moving through a world where we feel as if we have to operate out of chaos 24-7. It's like, no, we do not. You have every right to experience joy, happiness, sadness. Yes, you can experience anger, but there's so many emotions that we should experience. And if we just shift that narrative on, you know, Black men don't cry or men don't cry or man up, that even saying that. Yeah. bring stress to my body because I just hate that idea, the idea of manning up. What does that even mean? But what if we shifted away from those myths that we know have caused harm and tried doing something different? Yeah. yeah. Amplifying the power of emotions and how much, what could come from us honoring what those emotions are. Yeah. I mean, that is so true about showing up differently. And I remember, you know, being taught to be very careful about how I expressed emotions in front of other people as a black person. Like you can't be seen as weak, even as a, as a young, as a girl, as a young woman, like I can't be seen as weak or be overly emotional. And I know many women are told that period, no matter, you know, race or ethnicity, but in particular, the concern was, um, you know, how people would react to me as a black woman, you know, people say, oh, Karis, you're so soft-spoken. I have that deep voice and I'm not a small person. And I don't know what people think I should sound like with all of that. But however, you know, I was told as a, as an advocate, well, you're so soft-spoken. And I don't think what people realize it's still something I impose on myself is, you know, I recognize that if I am loud, if I become very loud, and that is interpreted as aggression, even though my body language is very relaxed, I'm, I'm laid back. But if my voice becomes loud, then I'm the aggressive, loud, black, B.I., so forth, you know, right? So so I've, I've learned to, and, and now it's just habit, I guess, because I've learned to do it, to be very soft-spoken. You know, I wonder what I would be if I didn't have to think about that, if I could just be 
me. And if, you know, me being loud or me raising my voice is number one, maybe I do need to shout because everybody else is shouting and I need to kind of be loud. Like I need to raise the volume or maybe um, I'm speaking out of passion. We know how people can speak out of passion and the tone, the timbre, everything about their voice change. Mine actually was quite flat for years because I thought I had to be flat no affect, no no volume change, that sort of thing, because I was kind of going into this worried about how others perceive me as a Black person, which is sad, <laughs> you know? It, it's super sad. And then, of course, everybody thought I was a singer. Oh, you've got that soft, sultry voice. You must be a singer. It's like, no. Oh, you must be your preacher. Like, what? No. <laughs> right. You know, I appreciate you lifting that because my mind goes to the idea around, you know, for so long, I think um, there has been this notion on who we are, right, and how we show up. And, you know, yes, we maybe one day you may feel as if my approach is coming off aggressive. But guess what? Last night, especially when we think of these young black and brown boys and just going through this maneuvering through a school system that doesn't see them, they may say, oh, they yelled at me. Well, guess what? They didn't eat last night. So what would you do if you didn't eat last night? Right. And did anyone ask that question? Right. So they're, they're, they're responding to the behavior, but they're not addressing what motivates that behavior. And oftentimes what I believe is what motivates a lot of behaviors are a multitude of things, trauma, but mostly unmet needs mm-hmm. things that they don't have that we're not addressing. You're exactly right. It's like, some people get to be hangry and we get to be angry. No, we're all hangry. We're all hungry, angry. It's angry, right? African-Americans, we as a whole, we they say we're 20% more likely to experience serious mental health problems than the general population, right? And when I think of that, like, what's the motivating fact behind that? Well, one, let's think about oppression and trauma that we encounter on a daily basis, racism, police brutality, community, sexual violence, sexism, poverty, homelessness, homophobia, there is this higher level of psychological distress, right? Yeah. Um, and I, we're working with this organization called Flores Agenda out in um, Oakland, California, where, you know, we hear about post-traumatic stress disorder and how that affects us on a regular basis, right? Um, but Dr. Sean Jenright out there created and coined this, this idea and this theory on called persistent trauma stress environments, yeah. where Black youth are consistently in a state of stress. They are consistently health disparities, food insecurities, lack of housing, lack of safety. That re- that is something that they're maneuvering through every day, mm-hmm. every day. So it is it post. It's persistent. Every day they're trying to find a way to maneuver through this. And how are we as a community acknowledging that and then responding to that and providing that support? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so happy you're doing the work that you're doing. So we're going to wrap up in a second. I just want to make sure that I talk about one thing. And you had said that the um, young black and brown boys who were in the program commit to three years, but you still see them after. And some of them have done amazing things. And so let's talk a little bit about, it's not like three years, thanks, you know, so sad, you know, bye, blah, blah, blah. But so talk a little bit about kind of after the three years, what kind of connections remain and what's happened to some of the people who've been through the program? 
I love that. You know, I think one of the great things about this work is that what we're introducing to these fellows is one about relationships and the power of relationships and also the power of mentorships. Um, I didn't have a mentor necessarily growing up. I had people that I looked up to, but it wasn't well. I was well into my professional years that I actually had a mentor. And we're reinforcing the idea of how powerful mentorship is. Um, you know, outside of the fact that this program has, since we were founded in 2010, we have 100% graduation rate. Um, we have a 100% college acceptance rate. This last year, we graduated, I think, 260, which was the biggest cohort that we've had to date. And we know that the 2026 cohort is going to be even bigger than that. Mm -hmm. um, so what we're seeing is that when we introduce mentorship to these fellows, when we introduce them to forming connections with well-meaning people, the results of that is kind of like this, um, it's like this cycle. So what happens, they recognize the power of mentorship, they go to their local schools, they're seeking out mentors. They're not only seeking out mentors, but they become mentors. So oftentimes what happens when you graduate from the program, you go to your respective schools or to community college, many of those fellows that went through the program, they come back and they then impart into the program what they took from the program. So they become mentors. I think this is a great story. We partner with community nonprofits in each of the sites that we work with. Our New York community partner is this organization called Brothers At. Brothers At was founded by, co-founded by the a graduate of the first TFI cohort. Wow. So he created a program that now provides mentorship to black and brown youth in New York, and they've now partnered with different schools to create, to continue that tradition, but they are an example of what this looks like. They are a manifestation to this work that we do. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for them to be our partners now and for him to be one, bring his experience of being a TFI fellow to now lead a program that is doing this work and continuing the work mm -hmm. of TFI is just a success story in its own. So what we're seeing is that most of the pro of the fellows that come through this program once they're done with this program, one, they still have relationships with us. They form relationships with TFI staff, community members that will last them for years. Many of them look at people doing this work as their mentors. They then pay it forward. Yeah. They become mentors in their local community, in their local schools, in their local TFI programs. And I think that is the biggest gift and the biggest success of this program because we're creating this system. Mm -hmm. That goes against the system of harm that we've been in for so long. We're mm -hmm. creating a system that counters that and says, hey, rather than us reinforcing all this other stuff, let's give back to these community. I saw what it did for me. So let me pay it forward and try to do the same thing for the next generation. Um, and that's the power of mentorship and the work that we're doing here at TFI. Yeah, snap, claps, thumbs up. I mean, it's the dismantling that that whole thing around the destruction of community, the rise of individualism that you're really driving home and, you know, being example of, you know, in the everyday work that you're doing, as you said, relationship, community, mentorship, and then passing it on that it's not like a one-off we're done you know a one a one and done no no this is this is amazing and you know so wonderful to hear about and you know you've dropped so much wisdom during this whole conversation but this is what I do with everybody because uh, uh you know there's a lot there if there's one piece of wisdom dropping or one piece of wisdom that you would like to leave um, our listeners with what would it be 
So this, I have two parts to this. One, I think we have to normalize the conversation on mental health, right? The same way we ask about, you know, we give direction on if someone broke their ankle or hurt their ankle, we say, oh, lift it up and put ice on it. Guess what? When someone is having an anxiety attack or when someone is anxious and in a panic mode, how about we say, hey, take a deep breath. You know, let's pause and be present in the moment. Let's normalize doing those things, right? The mm-hmm. other part to this is also, I think when we think about Black masculine bodies, I have to highlight uh, Sauder Dunlap and Janelle Lawrence, two of my vibrant colleagues who part who I partnered with and we created this like um, presentation around redefining Black masculinity. Imagine a world where we saw Black masculine bodies not as hard or cold, but as traumatized. Black masculine bodies not as aggressive, but as unprotected. Black masculine bodies not resistant, but exploited. Black masculine bodies not violent, but over police. Black masculine bodies are not at risk, we're targeted. Imagine if we lived in a world where society saw Black masculine bodies as such, and then we provided support with that mindset and lens in mind. Preach. I have no words. That is amazing and an amazing way to end and thoughts for our audience and actions too. So Damon, thank you so, so much for joining me today. And thank you for all the work that you're doing. Thank you, Karis, for this opportunity. I am honored to be a part of this work. And my hope is to just continue doing this work. All right. Fantastic. So for our listeners, y'all know what to do. Well, my producer says y'all are supposed to do these things, which is like, comment, subscribe. and. I will add, because I think it's the most important thing, is to share, to share episodes of the podcast, especially this episode, so that folks who need the information can have it, uh, can apply it, can share it with others. It's so, so important. And with that, I will leave you all and look forward to seeing you all next week on Unapologetically Black Unicorns.